This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This episode is brought to you by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 3100 Digital Autopilot provides increased safety, decreased pilot workload, and is approved for over 200 makes and models. To learn more about the STEC 3100, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. That's genesis-aerosystems.com. Cleveland Center, this is Wildcat 315 Echo. Mayday, mayday, mayday. Smoke in the cockpit, severe vibration. I need a divert to the closest airport, and I need it now. Welcome to another edition of There I Was, a podcast where we put you in the cockpit with pilots in demanding situations, and we learn how they flew out of them. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Today's episode, we have aviation enthusiast John Pappy Mesa. John's got over 5,000 hours of commercial flying, and he's type certified in several warbird airplanes, including a Spitfire and a Wildcat. John's got a single engine land rating, a multi-engine land rating. He's a former aircraft racer. He's owned over 30 airplanes. He started flying at age five in an air coupe with his father. He's the former chairman of the Virginia Aviation Board, former chairman of Richmond International Aviation Board. He's had a lifelong adventure in aviation. And today he's gonna share his experience with an engine failure flying a Grumman FM2 Wildcat. John, welcome to the podcast. Richard, thank you. Appreciate being on, truly do. Well, John, we learned about an interesting issue that you had flying the Grumman FM2 Wildcat, which itself can be a sporty airplane to fly. So do you mind sharing with us your story? Yes, I'm happy to, Richard. It was June 15, 2012. I was leaving uh, out of the Military Aviation Museum. The Wildcat belongs to uh, Jerry Yagan, the owner of that museum down in Virginia Beach. My first fuel stop en route was going to be Altoona. And I was really excited about this. It was, first of all, the first air show in the Wildcat and the first air show that I've ever done in Canada. And I'd just been flying the Wildcat, just got checked out maybe two weeks prior to this flight. So I didn't have a tremendous amount of time in it, but I had quite a bit of time in the SNJ and the P-40, B-25, and some in the uh, Catalina, PBY Catalina at the time. So I was familiar with the management of the engines and the flight characteristics and so forth. And at this point in your career, John, you had been a racer up and down the East Coast, so you had had a fair amount of experience with really high-performance engines and high-performance airplanes. Yeah, did this back in the 70s, early 80s, I was racing um, the formulas, and yeah, they were pretty, pretty slick little airplanes. I detonated, as I always say, two engines in them. Fortunately, you're right there at the airport, and you were able to, you know, I was able to get them down on the field. But yeah, uh, speed was there. 
The big difference is the, the weight of the warbirds and the power and the torque of those aircraft is, is just tremendous. The first time that I flew P-40 was the first fighter that I flew. Everybody warned me and kept warning me about the torque on takeoff. And the way we train down at the museum, the pilots coming in, which there's a long list, but very few are selected because it's the world's largest privately owned museum, but there's approximately nine of us that fly all of the planes down there. So it it takes a while to get in there. I know, Richard, that you flew in the uh, military, Air Force pilot, and it's probably the training is very similar to what we do is we start off by sitting in the cockpit with our helmets on and all our gear and just sitting there hour after hour memorizing where everything is located in that cockpit. So by the time you're ready to start that plane and taxi, you can literally put your hand on any button in there, switch with your eyes closed. Once that's done, then you get in the plane, strap in, just like if you're going to take a flight, start up, run your engine up, warm it up, do your engine checks, and then shut it down. And you'll do this four or five times at least, if not more, to where all of this is just becoming second nature to you on this aircraft. Then the next step is you get in it, start it, you taxi it to the end of the runway, you run it up, pull out on the runway, tack it up to the takeoff RPM, go through all the checks, pull it back to idle, taxi it back in. You do this five or six times minimum. So by the time you're really ready to take off, you're pretty familiar with that plane. So the concentration is on the takeoff and the flying and not everything else at that point. John, I think that's such a critical point that we really haven't stressed on this podcast yet. And it reminded me very much of my military training. You're right. When I went through learning uh, to fly in the Air Force, uh, to start out in the T-37, for example, I would go home at night and I would sit and do the study. There's an enormous amount of study before they let you in the airplane, of course. And I would sit in my full flight gear, including my helmet. I'd have the oxygen mask. And I would sit for hours at a time while I was doing my studying because I wanted it to be second nature, the smell of the oxygen mask, the feel of my helmet, how to attach those bayonets for your mask and unattach them and where the comm cord would go. I wanted all of that stuff to be out of the way where I didn't have to think about it so I could focus entirely on flying the airplane. And uh, that's, a, that's a great memory that you brought back. And you're right, we, we, we did that the very same way because the kind of airplanes you're flying, you can't afford to have a little lapse of a second of concentration because your comm cord isn't connected right or it got tangled up in your seatbelt or whatever the case is. Those little bitty things are so very important when you're flying those high-performance airplanes. They are. They are extremely important. And it's the, the little things in these planes that, that will get you. And, you know, we tell everybody, well, any plane can kill you in a heartbeat. These just do it a little bit faster. <laughs> so the training is very, very crucial. We are fortunate down there. We've had, I've had some tremendous pilots that trained me and the fighters down there. Mm. Of course, when you come in, you got to have a ton of time in T-6s. I mean, the, the 200 hours doesn't cut it. These are very expensive airplanes. Uh, they're Jerry Yagans, and we're just blessed to be able to fly these aircraft. Um, so getting back to the P-40 on that first takeoff, you know, I pulled out, brought it up to power, checked everything, released the brakes, and you're supposed to go from 25 inches to 30 inches to 35 inches on up from there. Well, when I released the brakes, it was 25, 30, 35, and here I go starting to go off the left side of the runway. Mm. 
and they were recording it. And you could hear all the guys, all the mentors going, right rudder, right rudder, right rudder. And what I'd forgotten to do is on these planes, you pull full right stick as well to help compress the right uh, landing gear strut. That will really help you. And as soon as I did that, it was straight and I was gone. And as I broke ground, all the other stuff I knew was fine, but I was probably a quarter of a mile behind that airplane, the acceleration (laughs) on it. So, but after that first flight, everything fell into place. Well, you know, John, that's another, you make another really good point about the application of power in the Air Safety Institute. We review a lot of mishaps, you know, some really tragic, others just uh, dinging an airplane. And what we've seen in many times with these very powerful engines, say a, a 185 or, you know, Navions now with 550s right. in them, and as people put in bigger horsepower engines, it's not always full power on a go-around or a takeoff. It's power is required. Correct. And a lot of times that full power, just that, that reaction from when you were learned to fly 172s of just cobbing the power in, will get you in more trouble than it will help you. So power as required has become something that uh, we're trying to reinforce on these larger engine airplanes. And that sounds like that was really critical for you as you were flying these warbirds. Yes, and you know, it's once you fly that first one, the rest of them, it's there. All the little hmm. things that you need to know, it's there. And it's just a matter of that particular airplane, the, the little differences in them and so forth. They all fly basically the same. And, and, and I'll say this, if you have a lot of time in a T-6, when they designed that airplane, they knew what they were doing. That is the pathway to flying these fighters and so forth. It's the same thing, except it's slower. That's the only difference. Yeah, I've heard that so many times from people flying P-51s and other warbirds that if you can master the T-6, you know, you can step up to the other ones, but it begins there with that with that T-6. Yeah. Yes, it does. Yes. So anyway, so I was very, very excited about this air show. I mean, it was going to be first time to Canada, you know, just got checked out in it. Uh, been flying to P-40 for several years prior to this. So we take off. The wind was howling that day down at Virginia Beach. Fortunately, it was pretty much down the runway. Climbed up 1,000 feet, got with Norfolk approach, and, um, you know, got flight following. Calm as could be at 1,000 feet. I mean, just a beautiful day, crystal clear. I mean, it's the day pilots dream about, not a bump in the sky. Mm. Everything was pretty uneventful. Went up to Altoona, landed there. That was my first fuel stop. When I taxi up, and it's like this with all warbirds, when you taxi up, anybody that's there is going to come out and look at it. Mm-hmm. And I love showing people these airplanes. I really do and talking about them. So I spent some time there, got a bottle of water, got it fueled up. Uh, they have a flight service station right there in the field, so I went in just to double-check weather and get some frequencies that I couldn't find that I needed. And went ahead and I took off, and everything was going great. Oh, by the way, when I was at... Altoona. One of the things we always do is when I land, first thing you do is you, you call the chief pilot. Let him know where you are. You've made it. Even though you're on flight following, just keep him informed of what's going on. That's mm-hmm. not micromanaging. That's smart safety right there. You know, so I told him, I told him, I says, uh, Mike, we should be up there. I should be there sometime between 1230, uh, 12.45 in Canada. And so we were good to go. So it took off, got with Cleveland Center, climbed on up to 6,500 feet. Again, just sitting there going, God, I'm, I'm just living the dream here. This is just unbelievable. And I stayed there for a while at 6,500. I guess I got drawn into the beauty of the day and 
not really thinking of all the little things I should have been thinking about. Then I started look, paying more attention to the terrain, and it was looking it was looking bad. I mean, there was just nowhere to put this airplane down. And I said, you know, I, I, this is not a good altitude. And something said to me to climb to 8,500. I don't know what it was. I don't know whether it was God or my dad sitting on my shoulder or both said, you need to go higher. Bad things are about to happen. So I climbed up to 8,500 feet, and everything was fine. I could just see Lake Erie, and after about three or four minutes after I leveled off, uh, there's no other way to put it, but all hell broke loose. The vibration was to the point where the, my vision was blurred trying to look at the instrument panel. Uh, you couldn't make things out. The cockpit was filling with smoke, and there I was. I think it took me, Richard, point zero zero three seconds to declare an emergency three one hundredths of a second to <laughs> declare an emergency <Okay. laughs> and you know i'd always never hesitated in my mind to say if i have a problem i'm going to declare emergency immediately i you know you always hear about well i don't want to do that paperwork this that next thing paperwork is easy that's the easiest thing and yeah. you know the faa I know some pilots would disagree, but FAA is a great bunch of guys. They are fantastic to work with, and they really are there to help you. They truly are. So anyway, immediately, I was already with Cleveland, which is very, very important, the flight uh, following. And I can remember it like it was yesterday. It was Cleveland Center, this is Wildcat, 315 Echo, Mayday, Mayday, Mayday. Smoke in the cockpit, severe vibration. I need to divert to the closest airport, and I need it now. Instantly... Cleveland came back and it said, 315 Echo, turn to 010 Jamestown Airport, nine miles. Can you make it? I said, I don't know. I'm steadily coming downhill. I mean, and the engine was just eating itself alive. Mm. Uh, you could just hear, literally hear and feel metal grinding in the engine. Mm. Uh, he says, how much fuel on board? How many souls? And it's always an eerie feeling when they ask you how many souls on board. Yeah. Uh, and it was, I had 600 pounds of fuel and, uh, Told him two hours of flying time, one soul on board. I uh, asked him for the winds, active runway, and frequency for Jamestown. And can they divert all traffic? He came back with traffic's already been diverted, airport's already closed. And the engine is still just eating itself up. Smoke isn't as bad, but it's still coming in the cockpit. I had the canopy open. And I was starting to stow things, uh, drawing up the straps, uh, making sure I was ready to bail out of the plane if I had to. John, I'm curious, what did you do with your throttle at this point in time? You're cruising, all of a sudden your engine just starts vibrating. You know you've got some kind of engine problem, smoke, and you know it's oil and so forth. Did you just leave the throttle there? Did you pull it back to idle? How did you respond The engine was still running. I was probably, and this is a a guesstimate, as I would always say, 20% of power, 30 at the most. Mm -hmm. I tried moving a little bit, and... It just didn't sound like it was going to work. And I, I just knew if I come back on it, it was going to quit. Hmm. At this point, the engine is gone. There's no need to try to save the engine. The priority right now is saving yourself uh, and making sure nothing happens to anyone on the ground. Hey, listeners, do you love aviation? Did you know that general aviation contributes billions to the U.S. economy every year and is a vital pipeline for military and commercial pilot force? 
AOPA works to ensure the vitality of the aviation industry and supports our freedom to fly. Join us and become a member now at AOPA.org. You'll become part of a worldwide community of aviation enthusiasts. We'd love to have you. Find out more at AOPA.org. So your best reaction to get the most out of this engine that you could was to just leave, leave the throttle where it was. Right. It was running like it was. I was real hesitant to do anything. I wanted to keep it going as long as I, as I could to get me as close to Jamestown as I could get because there was really nowhere to put this airplane down. It, it just wasn't. You know, uh, I'd already prepared myself to bail out if I had to. I told uh, Cleveland that um, he asked me again, do you think you're going to be able to make Jamestown? Because I could see Jamestown now. I says, I'm not sure. Well, I said, there's a ridge I've got to clear. With hindsight, the ridge probably wasn't that big, but at that moment it looked like Mount Everest that I was going to have to go over. Mm -hmm. I told him that. I said, if I can't make the ridge, I says, I'm going to circle on the south side. I'm going to bail out there. I says, I'll try to give you a lot long prior to the bailout. I says, I'm coming out of the plane at 3,500 feet. If I can't make, you know, clear that ridge, I says, I'll stay wherever I land unless obviously I know there's something nearby. I says, send rescue as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. I had a personal ELT on me. I had a life vest on because I was going to go across, and I had uh, a survival pack in my harness, uh, my chute and all. So I, I had the temporary survival products that I needed if I was able to survive the bailout. Mm-hmm. So I realized as I was getting closer to the ridge, I was going to make it over that ridge. And like I say, it's just the engine is, the vibration is getting worse and worse and worse. To one point you think, is the engine going to rip out of this thing? Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're losing about at least 1,000 feet a minute. You're nine miles away. You're at 8,500. The fuel elevation there is 1,700. So when I'm doing the math, it's like, I don't think this is going to work. I just don't think I have enough to get there. The two things I had going for me, I had a tailwind. And fortunately, uh, Jamestown has two runways. So I knew if I couldn't make the main runway, maybe I could do the crosswind runway and come in. Mm-hmm. The closer I got to the airport, I went, you know, I think I'm going to make it. I think I'm going to make it. And I told Cleveland, I said, Cleveland, I think I'm going to make it. And let me say this, Cleveland Center never left me for a second, not one second. Mm-hmm. They were there. I mean, basically, they were my co-pilot. They allowed me to fly the plane while they took care of all the logistics of getting everything together. I was able, as I was coming in, it just so happened that the active runway was runway 25. The winds were right down the runway. So I was able to, I wasn't able to do the overhead, which I always prefer doing the overhead. It's just so much easier when you do them thousands of times. Mm -hmm. The overhead to me is the only way to bring an airplane in, but I had to do the, the famous downwind base and so forth. So I did part of a overhead. I just didn't do the brake part. And I literally entered the downwind. And on these warbirds, you don't ever put the gear down unless you know it's a solid, sod airfield that's good or it's a paved runway because they're famous for flipping over if the gear catches. Yeah. So I kept the gear down because the gear will come down really fast in that wildcat. you got to hang on to the crank as you're cranking it down. And right as I was, uh, right before I was turning my base and 
my base to final is just a steady 360 degrees. You know, you, you flew them in the Air Force. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, I turned right, right a beam the numbers. And as I'm cranking it down, when it got down and locked, I heard a bang. And there was a, a commuter sitting there holding. And I asked the commuter, I said, look, as I come by, just let me know if that gear looks like it's down to you. He says, yeah, we'll let you know if you need to make a go around. And I went, that's going to be a negative on the go around. <laughs> and I, I was able to come in streaming smoke, sat down. It's probably the best landing I had made to that time in that airplane. And as I'm coming into the flare, the power is coming back all the way. At that point, it quit, which I'm glad I didn't pull it back, obviously, in the air. Yeah. And I was yeah. able to literally roll off the runway and onto the ramp. And, you know, for a second, I said, my God, Bob Hoover did that. And I am no Bob Hoover, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> anyway, and then <laughs> funny part was this elderly gentleman came out and I'm sitting there. And for the first time during this entire thing, my legs started shaking. Prior to that, huh. there was no nervousness. <laughs> you know, the, yeah, you, you have a nervousness, but you're concentrating so much on flying that airplane yeah. that you don't have time to get scared or panic or you shouldn't. And uh, he walked out, and I'll never forget this. He says, Sonny, let me tell you something. I'm sitting in the cockpit. And he said, it reminded me of in the Philippines in World War II. Young hotshot comes flying in and a shot up wildcat. I said, sir, I'm not young, and this ain't the Philippines. I said, but thank you for the compliment. <laughs> <laughs> so that was it. The first thing I did when I got out of the plane was to obviously call ATC, call Cleveland Center. Mm-hmm. And um, I got the controller that had helped me on the phone, and I probably thanked him 10 times. And, you know, he says, hey, this is one of the good ones. Everything turned out great. And then he said the magic word that I think scares everybody to death. He says, you know, there may be some paperwork on this. I says, at this point, do you really think I'm concerned about paperwork? (laughs) He says, no. He says, you probably won't, but you may. I said, send it. If it'll help you guys in any way, send it. I don't mind filling it out. Um, Second person I called was our chief pilot to let him know what had happened. When he answered the phone, he says, you in Canada already? I said, well, I got some good news and bad news. And the first words out of his mouth were, are you okay? I said, yeah. I said, you don't even know what I'm going to say. He said, it can't be good. I said, well, the plane's fine. It's on the ground at Jamestown. I said, the bad news is the engine's gone. And then I went on to tell him what happened. He said, look, you stand tight. We'll figure a way to get a plane up there and get you. And then the third person I called was my wife. And she says, what's wrong? <laughs> First words, what's wrong? <laughs> and I told her, and her words are, are you ready to quit flying? I said, sweetheart, I've been flying since I was a little kid. This is my fourth engine night. I've been blessed every time. Doesn't mean something bad won't happen, but no, I'm never giving up flying, ever. And so what happened, to give you an idea, the engine, a valve stem broke on one of the valves. Mm. The engine swallowed the valve, literally blew the whole top out of the piston, and then all that metal started going down. Of course, everything's out of balance now and just started chewing it up. I know when they um, had the engine rebuilt, they had to go through the um, oil cooler as well because it was full of metal. Mm. One of the good things is that it was a radial. Radial will keep running until, you know, it's, it'll just kill itself. The V12s, you lose a coolant line or whatever, and you've probably got 30 seconds or so of flight time left. Mm. So, you know, I, lear- I learned a lot 
from that episode, even though I've had other emergencies and so forth. And I mean, a long list of things. Flight following. Like I said, ATC, they were my co-pilot. They immediately helped me. I do not think I would have made it to that airport because of the critical seconds that I would have taken up trying to find the divert, so forth and so on. Even with, you know, the GPS you can hit nearest and, and so forth. Had I stayed at 6,500 feet also, I'd have never made it to that field. I'd have been short coming in. Mm. That's why I always say altitude is your friend, except when you're at altitude and you're on fire and you need to get on the ground. That's the only time it's not. Yeah. That seems like that time period was so critical. You had the extra altitude for whatever reason, kind of that voice in the back of your head said mm-hmm. climb, and you did. And you listened to it. Your gut instinct, for whatever reason, tells you, and you listen to it. And then you were on flight following, so immediately they snap you to the nearest field. And to your point, John, yeah, you got the GPS, and you can hit nearest and all that. Well, the rest of us can imagine how difficult that would be as your engine is beginning to eat itself. There's smoke in the cockpit, and you've got all these other factors that you're dealing with. How easy do you think it would be to hit nearest on the GPS and find it and assess the information? And much easier to have somebody right there as your wingman to say, you know, snap to this heading, Jamestown's nine miles away. I don't even know if I could have. With the way it was vibrating and with the GPS, you know, suction mount on the panel, it was a little Garmin 396. I don't even know if I could have. I knew eventually I could have hit the nearest button, but, you know, the way it was shaking, it was blurred looking at. And uh, you're zooming in, you know, to try to see things. And, yeah, I don't, I don't know how long it would have taken me. It, let's put it this way. When I entered downwind, there was nothing left. There was no energy. The energy was dying on it. Mm-hmm. And like I said, another five, ten seconds, I probably would not have made it to that field. It was that close. And then you mentioned you immediately declared an emergency, which allowed ATC to just start moving things in your favor without you even having to ask the question, closing the airport down, moving traffic out of the way. They've already started all that stuff without you having to ask because right off the bat, you declared the E-word. Seemed like a pretty critical decision also. It was instant. All the mentors I've had in my life, from the gentleman I talked about to my dad and the gentleman that soloed me, my dad taught me, but the gentleman that soloed me was a B-17 pilot in World War II. The gentleman I got my private and commercial from, he was a T-6 instructor in World War II, and, and his call sign was the same as mine, Pappy. All of these gentlemen emphasized never hesitate to declare emergency, never. Forget the paperwork. Forget whether you'll get in trouble. It's better to be in trouble than not be alive. Yeah. And you mentioned something about that I really agree with, too, John, about the FAA and their perspective and where they come from. And we've all heard some horror stories, but they really are one-offs. And especially since the FAA has moved to this compliance uh, philosophy or compliance program that they moved to uh, a few years ago, I've really seen a change in the whole culture around general aviation that's so favorable to safety. And that is I feel like we're much more partners now with the FAA and the controllers. Where It used to be us versus them. Don't tell them any more than you have to and, you know, all this kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. Uh, I've really seen that change with this compliance program uh, for the better. Yeah. And you remember the old saying, hi, I'm, I'm, the, I'm with the FAA. I'm here to help you. Well, that is true now. It really is true now. Yeah, it used to be a joke, but I believe now it, it's, it's true. Yes, it is. Some of the other things, uh, you know, I'd like to share is um, – Practice emergency landings and emergencies as much as possible. Every time you can do it, practice them. 
you may never need it, and that's what you hope for. But the one time you do, you know, it may save your life. It may. Know your airplane. You know, we talked about earlier knowing where every switch, every button, every circuit breaker, everything is in that cockpit. So you're not taking those crucial seconds to locate something. Your hand just goes right to it. As always, I think everybody says this, don't panic. Stay as calm as you possibly can, because once you panic, then the brain functions don't work as well. It's, it's just memory overload. You're just stressed out. So try to stay as calm as you can. Like we also talked about, never hesitate to declare an emergency. Uh, paperwork is no big deal. It really isn't. <laughs> So I wanted to ask you, John, you had mentioned you wore a survival vest and you had these things that you were ready. And that, I think, was some level of comfort to you that if you had to bail out of this thing, you had the basics you needed. I fly in the backcountry with a Super Cub, and I just flew it uh, cross-country, you know, some pretty remote places in Idaho, Montana, and so forth. And I, I do the same thing. I fly with a vest, and I learned that from my backcountry mentors that said, hey, man, uh, survival equipment is what you have on your body. Anything else in the back is camping gear. That's right. And I've, I've really learned to embrace that philosophy of carrying, you know, a, a cliff bar or something extra that I might need, a small bottle of water, my uh, in-reach uh, device, the things that I'm going to need if, you know, if something happens. Sounds like uh, you guys had the same philosophy. We do. And I'll give you an example. Um, probably every other year recently, we've had um, a jump expert. And they go through the bailout procedures, what to do, what don't to do, how to get to that ripcord when everything is flying all around, you're panicking and so forth, where to locate it. They provided us with these pouches that mount on our parachutes that have a cord cutter in them, flash mirror, reflective mirror, and a lot of other little things. It's not very bulky. It just fits right there. I also carry a quick opening knife in my right flight suit sleeve just if I got to cut a seatbelt, cut a cord to do something to get out. And whether you're flying a 172 Cessna or a Wildcat, you should have this stuff in your plane or on you or close to you. You never know. An accident's an accident. They don't discriminate on the type of aircraft that it is. So anything you can prepare yourself for. My son and I, we were going down to Mobile, Alabama. This is about 10 years ago. He was purchasing a Yak-50, and um, we're going down in the Bonanza. And, you know, between where we are here in central Virginia down there, you go over some desolate area. Well, I had a backpack with hatchet, survival equipment, food, water, fishing line, hooks, uh, signal mirror, personal ELT, everything I could think of to carry with us that we could get to quickly if we had to. Of course, we didn't have parachutes because you're not going to get out of one of those with a parachute, you know. Yeah. Well, and it's not just uh, warbirds and backcountry kind of airplanes. In our episode we had earlier this year, Patty Wagstaff talked about when she had a brake failure in her Bonanza and it flipped upside down. And there she is, you know, stuck inside her Bonanza and really, you know, could have used a canopy breaker tool. They ended right. up getting out okay and everything. but. It really had her think about when your airplane does that unexpectedly, the stuff you think you have available to you is, is going to be spread out everywhere. Who knows mm-hmm. if you can find it? So um, just some things to think about that whatever airplane you're flying, there's probably a couple of things that you would need and you need to have them mm-hmm. handy. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm also curious, John, about 
You had mentioned that you had made the decision that you were going to bail out at 3500 mm-hmm. which looks like that's maybe, uh, based on the terrain you were talking about, roughly somewhere in the neighborhood of 2000 AGL or so. Is that in your training, where if you're uncontrolled by 2000 you know, you get out? Or what, what made that decision? Just studying different warbirds, people getting out. I've seen them where the, the Sky Raider hit the Mustang, Mustang over in England. Mm-hmm. And literally you saw... The can instantly the canopy come off the Mustang, and it was a very very experienced Mustang pilot that was flying it, and he was out and he probably swung, maybe once or twice before he touched the ground, and he was probably I'm guessing 700 feet somewhere in that area I, I'm guessing at that looking mm-hmm. at the airplane mm-hmm. and the height above the terrain, I just felt comfortable that if I got out at 2,000 feet I would have plenty of time to get that canopy open. You know, you're always concerned about hitting the tail. We don't have ejection seats. So when you're coming out of this thing, you can always hit a tail. Fortunately, we have helmets on that will help. But, you know, you get hit in the face or whatever. You know, you need some time to get your thoughts together. And, you know, like the jump master say, when you first come out, it's a whole different world. The winds blast at you. Your parachute may not be as tight as it needs to be because, People have a tendency to make the parachute comfortable in flight, and that's not what you need it for. You need it to be uncomfortable, so when you get out, it is comfortable. Mm-hmm. So 2,000 to me was an altitude. First of all, at that altitude, uh, 2,000 feet above AGL. I felt very comfortable getting a, a full shoot and plenty of time to orient myself where I was. That if there was any anything around, I could at least get to quickly uh, rather than sitting there hanging in a tree or just waiting on the ground. It seems like the critical part of that whole decision process was that you had obviously spent a lot of time at zero knots and 1G under no stress thinking through, if I'm ever in a situation, this is my altitude at which point it's a, it's a tripwire. That is mm-hmm. a binary decision. I hit this tripwire. This is the action I take because you wouldn't have time to assess all that in the moment. No, you won't. You gotta, you gotta, that's got to be right. a premeditated decision, yeah. don't you think? You've got to have, as I say, a hard deck where you're coming out. You, you have to have that. And make that decision, and once you make it, stick with it. It's just like if you have an engine out and you pick a field to, you're going to put it in, don't change because you think you see another field that might be better. Stick with your first choice because you're lined up, your thoughts are there, you're concentrating on that, and you don't want to divert to something that may not be better. Yeah. And you mentioned that you wanted to address your decision to fly over the lake. And I'm curious about that because I've had, I'll share a story with you. I'm flying my Navy on to, um, to Oshkosh one year. I've got my colleague Dave Hirschman uh, in with me. And I say, hey, we're going to go high over the lake. And uh, if we have an engine ferry, you know, I'll look for a, a boat and we'll, we'll put it in the water near a boat. And he kind of smirks at me. And so we fly over the lake. And then once we get over the lake, he looks at me and says, well, how many boats did you see down there? Uh, zero. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So uh, he says, yeah, I've, I've never really seen one that would meet that criteria. And that was just an interesting dialogue that we had. So... Talk to us about, you wanted to yeah. readdress that, that situation of flying over the lake. What, what's your thinking on that now? Okay. This is, when you think about this, you say to yourself, why would I have ever even thought to go straight across? It's 18 miles difference to hit the coast, fly around by Buffalo, and come on over to Hamilton. It's five minutes of flying time, if I'd have done that. Because the following, or two years later, I took the Spitfire up. 
and by no means was I going to go across that lake. I don't know what made me think to do that. Prior to that, we had taken the Catalina up to um, Godrich, Canada, to have it painted. And, of course, we're in a Catalina flying boat. We went across the lake. We had two engines, pontoons, and so forth. And I don't know why I made that decision. You know, like I said, I had a life vest on, which made it, quote, legal, but it also made it stupid to do, very stupid. And that's one of the things I tell everybody. Fly the safest route regardless of the time it's going to take you. You know, avoid, you know, single-engine airplane. You can't always do this, but avoid flying over large cities. And there's sometimes you have to fly over cities. You can, I mean, you've got to. But if you don't have to, don't do it. Yeah. You know, spend that extra time to go around them. Yeah. And then the other thing I wanted to chat with you about, John, is you're basically doing a partial engine sort of uh, dead stick landing, right, where you've got to come in, you enter downwind. And my observation as a CFI is most of the time when I pull an engine on somebody near an airport, they almost always land short. Yeah. They almost always come in short. They underestimate the glide they're going to need. How were you able to do that so well? Was it, as you mentioned, just you, you practiced that a lot, your experience with that? Well, a lot of these planes, if you're beamed the numbers, you're at 1,000 feet. If you chop the power, you're going to land a little, little ways down beyond the numbers. You might have to adjust, you know, doing the regular 180-degree turn to come in. As long as you're turning, a beam the numbers. And it works for most of the planes pretty, pretty good. It, it really does. I know I've done it in the T-6. I can't even count how many times I've done that just to see where I'm going to land. And you, and you don't always do it when you're in the downwind. Mm -hmm. You do it at all different altitudes, all different locations to practice. But once you get in that position and you fly a procedure, if you can, to get it in. Because if you're following a procedure, that's already ingrained in you what to do. And you know what it'll do by the numbers, and you try to keep doing that. Just like I say, you're on the perch, and you're coming around, you know you'll make it from that point. Yeah. Uh, Jamestown had a fairly long runway, so that was a good thing. And the, the Wildcat doesn't take much runway. It just doesn't. It's a carrier plane. It was made to just land short. Even, you know, obviously they had a tail hook. But I knew even if I got it halfway down the runway, I was fine. So I'd rather have it a little long than end up in the weed short of that runway. So that's a good thing for us to think about is that if that happens to you, whether it's partial engine failure, total engine failure, you're near an airport or a strip or grass, whatever you picked out, don't aim for the threshold. Give yourself a little buffer because at least my personal observation is most people come up short. So fudge that a little bit, especially if you've done well and you're heading into the wind. Whenever you come off that downwind heading into mm -hmm. the wind, you can expect a little reduction in your, in your uh, glide distance. And when you're on downwind... Don't go out a mile from the end of the runway before you turn base. I know that's how everybody is trained, mm -hmm. but that engine can quit at any time. And, I mean, it could happen to any of us. There's some planes that you need the room to get out turned and do the things you're doing. But any time you can make that 180 from uh, downwind to final and stay right there close to the numbers, you're so much better off. Well, what a what a story. So thankful that it, it ended successfully in a happy ending. And is the airplane got a new engine and it's back flying today and everything? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it took it took about a year. They got a new engine in it. I've taken it to a couple of shows. So it, it's running fine. We just got a uh, another gentleman checked out in it, Kevin Simbali. 
Sinbad. Uh, he was a retired Navy A6 intruder pilot, and so he loves loves flying a Navy airplane. So he's really excited about flying it now. Fantastic. Well, John, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about or address that we didn't discuss as far as your lessons learned or observations? Or um, You know the old saying, fly the plane, fly the plane, fly the plane. Just let that be ingrained in everybody. Never quit flying your airplane, ever, ever. You just stand so much of a better chance of survival by doing that. Yeah. Maintain aircraft control analyze the situation and take proper action. That all sounds really, really simple, but in the moment, it can be hard to do. Uh, yeah, it, it, in the moment, the mind is so overloaded, it's unbelievable. That's why I said ATC helped unload part of that that I had to go through. Well, John, thanks so much for your time. I look forward to meeting you someday and uh, hopefully coming down there and seeing the museum. It sounds like a great place to visit. Oh, you'd love it. It's beautiful down there. It's heaven. <laughs> you know, I tell everybody, I says, you know, if you're an aviator and you pass away and if you go to heaven, this is what it looks like, just like this. <laughs> you get to fly all these airplanes. They never run out of fuel. They never have maintenance issues. And you don't have to pay it to do it. <laughs> Good stuff. Well, thank you so much, John. All right, Richard. Thank you. Well, a fantastic episode with John Pappy Meza and his engine out in an FM2 Wildcat. Some great lessons learned there that we can all incorporate into our flying. So, John, we're glad it ended safely. We're glad that Wildcat is back flying. And we're thankful for all the training and preparation that suddenly came to bear in the moment for you and everything went right. Thanks for joining us on this episode of There I Was. Alongside our producer, Tyler Pangborn, I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Until next time, fly safe. Hey, listeners, if you like these podcasts and you'd like to help us continue providing them, please consider a donation to help our efforts. Go to aopafoundation.org slash donate. That's aopafoundation, all one word, dot org slash donate. And thanks for your support. There I Was is produced by the AOPA Air Safety Institute. If you'd like to hear other episodes, submit comments, or submit your own story to potentially be featured on the show, please visit airsafetyinstitute.org slash there I was. Thanks for listening.